Esses chapter 6, verse 10 through chapter 7, verse 18. It reads, Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of his birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as a crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. This is God's word. Well, we are working our way through the book of Ecclesiastes on Sunday morning, and Lord willing, we'll wrap it up in two more weeks. A lot of commentators and scholars say that in our passage for today, there's no single idea or argument that the preacher, and that's what the author of Ecclesiastes goes by, the preacher. There's no single argument that the preacher is making here. It's just kind of a grab bag of, of Proverbs. I don't think that's the case. I admit it's hard to see the argument here, harder than in most places in the Bible. But I I think there is a statement that the preacher is trying to make here about wisdom. I mean, clearly this is about wisdom because we see that word sprinkled all throughout the verses Drew read. Ecclesiastes is part of a five-book genre of Scripture in the Bible called the wisdom literature, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. And I think the argument the preacher wants to make in this part of Ecclesiastes, and really, I don't know of any other place in the Bible where wisdom is talked about like this. This is unique in the Scriptures. He wants to make the argument, and I'm going to lay it out for you like this. First of all, he wants to show us the goodness of wisdom, okay? Goodness of wisdom. But second, he wants us to be clear that there are limitations on wisdom. And then third, he wants to reveal to us what is in the heart of the truly wise, what makes up the heart of the wise, So the goodness of wisdom, the limitations of wisdom, and what's in the heart of the wise. 
All right, so first, the goodness of wisdom. Now, before we do anything else, we've got to define what wisdom is. Because it doesn't do any good talking about wisdom if, if we don't have an agreement about what we're talking about. Wisdom is not intelligence. You can have a sky-high IQ, you can be a genius, you can be a member of Mensa, and still not have a lick of wisdom. Uh, some of you may have been on Ole Miss's campus and encountered some professors who were highly intelligent, yet they lacked some wisdom in certain common sense areas of life. We know this is true. Intelligence, intelligence is not a guarantee of wisdom. It's not, it doesn't mean you don't have it, but it doesn't guarantee that you have it. Likewise, wisdom does not mean knowing what is the right or wrong thing to do in any given situation. You can keep the Ten Commandments and still not be wise. No one has ever said, hey, that guy doesn't steal, therefore he must be wise. I mean, a wise person won't steal, but it's just not stealing. That in and of itself won't make you wise. Having wisdom instead means this. It means knowing what is the best thing to do in any given situation when your intellect can't tell you what to do and when the moral rules of right and wrong don't apply. So, for example, we're, we're in a university town, so there are lots of 21-year-olds every year who want to know what career path should I go down. And your intelligence can't answer that question because finding the right career for you is not like an algebra problem where you just plug in the factors and boom, out comes the answer. There are factors that can't be measured that go into that equation. What career path should I go down? And likewise, that's not a moral issue too. I mean, the overwhelming majority of jobs out there aren't right or wrong unless you want to be a hitman for the mob or something like that. The overwhelming majority of career paths you could go down are neutral when it comes to morality. So what career path should I take? That's a question that only wisdom can answer. Should we move into this neighborhood or that neighborhood? Should I date this person? Should I marry this person? How much help should my adult child get from me? How do I talk to this person who's hurt me? What do I do with all my time now that I'm retired? Those are not questions that intellect or knowing the Ten Commandments can answer. Those are questions that only wisdom can address. Uh, so, for example, uh, last week or two weeks ago, the New York Times ran an article on David Letterman. Now he's over a year into his retirement from his late-night television show. And it's a very very revealing article. In it, Letterman uh, said this about his very, very successful career as a late-night television talk show host. He said, quote, I'm a little embarrassed that for 33 years it was the laser focus of my life. When the show was great, it was never as enjoyable as the misery of the show being bad. Is that human nature? He asked the reporter. Is that human nature? And then the article went on to say that, his, that Letterman's biggest concern now was his son, Harry, who's 12 years old, I think, and how, how to raise Harry. Now, there, there, was a, there was a long season in my life where I did not go to bed at 9 o'clock like I like to do now. There was a long season of my life where the last person I saw was David Letterman. And so I can, I think I can say confidently that he's a highly intelligent man. You may or may not think he's funny, but he's intelligent. He's a smart guy. But do you see, his wisdom can't help him determine how much focus to put on his career. His intelligence, rather, can't tell him how much focus to put on his career, nor can it tell him how 
strict or lenient to be with his 12-year-old son. Those are matters of wisdom. So, of course, wisdom is a good thing, and the preacher urges, the preacher, the author of Ecclesiastes, urges his readers to get it. Uh, This is verses 11 and 12 in chapter 7. Wisdom is good with with an inheritance, or it's like an inheritance. It's good in that way. An advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. And if the preacher is indeed King Solomon, as I think the preacher is, then it means that he wrote an entirely other, a a totally different book in the Bible, Proverbs, and all over Proverbs are these commands to seek out wisdom. I'll just give you one, Proverbs 4, beginning in verse 7. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. The beginning of wisdom is, know you need it. And whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly, and she will exalt you. Now, just quickly, how do you get this wisdom? The Bible says one of the ways you do it, one of the main ways you do it, is you take the Scriptures, you take the Bible, you take the Word of God, and you turn those Scriptures over in your mind, over and over and over again, time and time and time again, and you work out the implications of them in your life. So the very first psalm, the first verse in the longest book of wisdom literature says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And that Hebrew word that means meditate is the image of a dog working over a bone, just getting all the goody out of the bone it possibly can, gnawing on it day and night. That, that's how you get wisdom. You take the source of all wisdom, the ultimate source of all wisdom on earth, the Word of God, and you think about it, and you think about it, and you think about it, and you work the implications of it out in your life. So let's just, by way of example, by way of illustration, let's do this with one verse from our text today, Ecclesiastes 7.10. The preacher says, Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Now, do you see what the preacher's saying? He's saying, don't you dare complain about how good life used to be before all these young'uns came along and ruined everything. Before this new generation came along and wrecked everything. Anyone who says that is not speaking from wisdom. So you think about that. Why would that be? Why would it be that it's, that's not a wise thing to say? And you, you, you work it out in your mind. You work it out in your life. I'll just give you a few reasons why perhaps the preacher wrote that. First, if you are determined, if you are determined to believe that no matter how good your life is right now, it was always better back in the good old days, you'll never be content. You'll never be satisfied because you'll be always, your present will never measure up to your past and it'll lead you into a life of misery, of barely contained misery. Second, Maybe the preacher wrote this because maybe the past, as you remember it, wasn't really how things were. We have a tendency as human beings to remember the stuff we want to remember and then forget the stuff we want to forget. So maybe our memory of the past isn't accurate with reality. Third, maybe your past was great, but maybe there was this whole other group of people in society back in the good old days which weren't so great for them. And they're a whole lot better off now because societal conditions have changed. 
And so you can't say that for them, the former days are better than these. Fourth, every generation that's ever lived has said the good old days were better than these. I don't care how old you are. I don't care if we have somebody who's 150 in the room this morning. When you were a boy, when you were a girl, somebody was complaining about that back then. Every generation has complained about this. Between the services, somebody came up to me and showed me a quote from Socrates about how the young people these days are just crazy running around and and not good for anything. Every generation says this. So maybe, maybe the reality is that's kind of a flaw of human nature to kind of get old and set in your ways and, and just disregard the young people. And maybe that doesn't reflect reality. And then fifthly and finally, I mean, there are others, but we're just working this out, right? Working out the implications. Fifthly and finally, if you're the kind of person that only goes around talking about how good things used to be, pretty soon nobody's going to want to talk with you. They'll be bored to tears every time you start pouring your memories over them about how things used to be. So do you see now what we're talking about? That's how you get wisdom. You take the scriptures and you mull them over in your mind over and over and over again. You, you, You suck all the marrow out of the bone that you can. And you work it out in your life, and that's how you become a person of wisdom. So that's a good thing, and we should do it. Now, second, the limitations on wisdom. Wisdom is a great thing, but there are limits. Let's read Ecclesiastes seven fifteen through 18. The preacher says, In my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life and his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Do not make yourself too wise, or overwise is how the NIV puts it. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Then verse 18, it is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. And the old NIV, I think, gets the sense of it right when it translates verse 18 like this. It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. The man who fears God will avoid all extremes. Now you read that and you say, how can it be that getting too much wisdom would destroy you? I mean, that doesn't make any sense. How could it be that being overly righteous, having too much wisdom, can lead to your destruction? How could that be a bad thing? And it's for that reason that these verses have thrown off a whole lot of people, a lot of commentators on Scripture, and basically they say they can't make heads or tail of it. But they say that if that's what the preacher is saying here, then it contradicts the rest of the Bible where it says, go get wisdom, go get wisdom. Is this a contradiction? Is this some kind of anomaly we need to erase from our Bibles? And, of course, I think the answer is no. If you think about it and you work it in, it makes perfect sense. The preacher is saying here, all he's saying here is this. Wisdom is a great thing, but it's not going to guarantee you a good life. And if you put all your eggs in the wisdom basket and expect that if you just study the Bible enough and you just meditate on the scriptures enough, you just get wise enough, everything's going to be okay, you're going to have a nice, easy, clean, good life, you're going to be sorely disappointed, and that disappointment might be so severe it leads to your destruction. Wisdom, the preacher says, when he says do not be overwise, he's saying wisdom 
cannot guarantee you a good life. Now, there are all kinds of examples of this. I'll just give you two from the scriptures. The first is Joseph. If you know the story of Joseph from the book of Genesis, you know Joseph, coat of many colors, Joseph, that guy. Joseph was an incredibly wise man. He was so wise that the most powerful man in the world, the Pharaoh of Egypt, made him his prime minister. And the Pharaoh said to Joseph, and it's recorded in Genesis 41, 39, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. Now, we read that Joseph was about 30 years old when Pharaoh said that to him. So that, of course, meant that Joseph's life had been wonderful and perfect up until he was 30 years old, right? Wrong. Because for the 14 years prior to his 30th birthday, Joseph was either in slavery to Potiphar or languishing in a dungeon. He'd had a horrible life for those 14 years before finally someone recognized his wisdom and his life made a turn for the better. Joseph is one example, but an even more potent example, I think, is Job. I mean, the Bible wants to be very clear about this thing, that wisdom will not guarantee you a good life. Job, by all accounts, we have no reason to think anything other than Job was an extremely wise man. Job 1.1 says that Job was one who feared God and turned away from evil. And Proverbs 9.10 says that the fear of God, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So we have every reason to think that Job was wise and he had a good life in part because of his wisdom. Because wisdom can help you with these things. Job, when the book of Job opens, is wealthy. He has a loving family. He is esteemed by the community around him. He has a great life. But what's the one thing everybody knows about Job? He ends up having a horrible life because through no fault of his own, through no fault of his own, not because of any unwise moves he made, he loses his children, he loses his wealth, his body is covered with sores, and he has a horrible life, at least for a period of time. If you put all of your hope that if you're just wise enough, you can avoid all the pitfalls in life and have a wonderful life on earth. You will be sorely disappointed, sometimes to the point to where you just give up in despair. But then second, wisdom, not only can it not guarantee you a good life, wisdom can't even guarantee you'll be a good person. Now we'll look at Solomon, okay? Solomon, the preacher of Ecclesiastes himself. We read in 1 Kings chapter 3 that soon after he, he rises to the throne of Israel, he prays to God that God would give him enough wisdom to govern his people well. And the Lord is pleased with his prayer, and this is what God says to Solomon in 1 Kings 3.12. Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold. I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived. And he had a wonderfully blessed life for a time. But we know that in spite of his wisdom and in spite of his good life, Solomon made horrible decisions that did eventually wreck his nation and had to have wrecked his family as well. 
had to have wrecked his family as well. We read that Solomon fell into, and I don't know what else to call it, Solomon fell into a sexual addiction. He accumulated a harem of a thousand women to satisfy his desires. And then on top of that, we read that Solomon broke broke the fundamental foundational commandment in the Bible, have no other gods before me. We read he established idols in the temple in Jerusalem, dumb and mute statues of wood and stone, and he began to worship them. He began to credit his good life to them instead of to God. It was a disaster. And it led to all kinds of suffering for Israel and for his family. You read about all this in 1 Kings 11, and to me it's one of the saddest chapters in the Bible. I dread getting to it and reading it every time I get to it in my Bible reading plan. It's so sad that someone so wise, the wisest man who ever lived, the wisest man who ever lived, was still able to tear his life apart with his own two hands. So friends, this is what you need to know. Wisdom is a great thing. But wisdom can't stop cancer. It can't prevent car accidents. It can't keep your heart from being broken. And wisdom can't even prevent you from one day losing your mind and with your own two hands tearing your life apart and hurting everybody around you, especially those whom you love the most. Wisdom is a great thing, but it's not an ultimate thing. It is not enough. The preacher wants us to know. Solomon, I think, wants us to know. It's not enough just to be able to make good decisions in this life. We need something more. There's one last thing we need if we're going to be truly wise. I think Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes at the end of his life. After he had gotten gotten all this wisdom, all this success, and then after he had turned away after he had turned away from the Lord and torn his life up. Then he wrote this book, and he realized at the end of his life there was one thing, there was one thing he did not factor in that could have grounded him, that could have grounded him and helped him in the hard times and kept him from falling apart on his own. What's that one thing? This is Ecclesiastes 7, beginning in verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment. And the day of death than the day of birth. The day of death is better than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning, in other words, a funeral, than to go to the house of feasting or a wedding or a birthday party. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Solomon is saying here, and he says it here in chapter 7 in a way it's, it's not said anywhere else in the Bible. He says there was one thing I did not reflect on, one last piece of wisdom I did not factor in, and if I had, maybe I would have avoided some of these pitfalls. I did not think about death. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. The living will take it to heart. He is saying, I didn't think about death, and that was my mistake, and I want to spare you from that mistake. Death is coming, the preacher says. It's coming for all of us, and we ought to think about it. 
But that's, of course, not something we want. That is not a message contemporary American or Western society wants to hear. We do everything we can in our modern Western society. In fact, there's a book called The Denial of Death. Just whatever we can to avoid thinking about it. Whatever we can to avoid reflecting on it. You can, it's very possible in our society to go into your 20s, even your 30s, and never have gone to a funeral, never have seen a dead body. We are the only civilization that's ever existed in human history that has so avoided death. And you know why we avoid death? Because our modern society has no answers for it. But it's coming, the preacher says. Death is coming for all of us. And the wise will consider it. The preacher would say, you are stunted in your psychological, spiritual, and emotional growth if you reach adulthood and you refuse to think about death. Death is in the heart of the wise. And if you reflect on death, there's, there's hope for true, lasting, complete wisdom. And that gets us to the third point, the heart of the wise. The heart of the wise. The preacher says that you'll find at least three things in the heart of every wise person that has reflected on death. And the first thing you'll find is patience. If you're a wise person who has reflected on death then you'll find, you'll find patience in their heart. There are some people in your life, there are people in all of our lives who have really let us down. They have disappointed us time and time again. And I'm not, I'm not necessarily talking about abuse or anything like that. I just mean garden variety disappointments. Could be your spouse, could be your kids, could be your parents, could be someone at work. But over and over again, this person has let you down. And what we're tempted to do at a certain point is just wash our hands of these people and make a judgment about them and say, they will never change. I'm done. I'm out. I'm done. The preacher says that's the one thing you must not do. And if you are reflecting on death, you'll be patient. And you say, how does that work? Okay, Ecclesiastes 7, 8. The preacher says, better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. So when the preacher says, better is the end of the thing than the be its beginning, it's saying that the, he's saying the only way to judge a man's life is after he's died. You can't properly judge a man's life at any point before that, because he might always change. Only at the end, only once death has come along, can you really judge somebody. The one thing we must never do is say about anybody else in our life, he or she will never change, because we don't know that. We're making a judgment, and we can't back it up. Jesus says this at one point. He says in Matthew 7, 1, judge not lest ye be judged. And all he's saying there is you can't make any kind of final determination about anybody on the planet because you don't really know. But if you're, if you're reflecting on death, if that's part of your thinking, if that's part of the fabric of who you are, just constantly evaluating things in that light, then you'll be patient because you'll know 
Yes, maybe they, maybe they won't change, but maybe they will. But whatever happens, I'm not going to make any judgment about this person until the very end. And until then, I'm going to do what I can to continue the relationship. I'm going to love this person as best I can. I'm going to say the things that need to be said. I'm going to pray for this person. Because I, better, the, better the end than the beginning. I can't judge this person until the end. And you know what that also means? It also means that as long as you're breathing, there's still hope for you. Because you know what? Most of the pain in your life is not brought about by other people. You know who brings it about? You. We are our own worst enemies. And there are some, I mean, a lot of us look at ourselves in the mirror and we say, when am I ever going to change? But don't judge yourself. Don't say, I'm never going to change. You can't do that. You, you can be patient with yourself because you are looking at life against the backdrop of death. And you know that only then can the judgment be rendered. Okay? First, you'll be patient. The preacher wants you to be patient. Second, in the heart of the wise, you'll find patience and you'll find humility. Nothing will humble you like death. I don't care how in charge you feel. One day, one day, you're either going to die suddenly or you're going to be on a respirator and they're going to pull the plug on you. And that's going to be it. And you won't be in control anymore. You won't be in charge anymore. Reflecting on that is a good thing because it will humble you now. That stiff neck that we all have that wants things our own way will start to bend and bow towards forces in the universe that are more powerful than us, namely God. As long, and as long as we're proud, that's a good thing. And that's a good thing because as long as we're proud, as long as we think we're self-sufficient, as long as we think we're in charge of our life and we call the shots, we are in a bad place because not only are the proud impossible to live with because they are so arrogant, But you can't admit, if you're proud, you can't admit the one thing you need to admit, which is you are a part of the problem in the world. You're messed up. Everybody's messed up. You are broken on the inside. All of us are broken on the inside. We either desire things we should not desire, or all the things we desire are fine, but we just desire, desire them in the wrong order. We desire some things more than we should others. Some of us desire our career so much that we're neglecting our family. Some of us desire sex with our spouses so much that we're ne neglecting the friendship. Some of us desire success for our children so much we're not worried about their character. We're broken. We're messed up. And if you're proud, you won't hear it. You won't accept it. But a wise man... A man who lives with death in mind realizes he's got to be humble. And so when people close to him come to him and say, we've got to talk about this. This is a problem. He will listen. The wise man listens to rebukes. That's Ecclesiastes 7.5. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Can you take, can you take criticism? Even if it's mostly unfair, can you take criticism and draw out from it what is legitimate and apply it to your life? Only the truly wise can do that. 
And then thirdly and finally, in the heart of the wise, you'll find the ability to trust God in suffering. And this is the big one. Suffering's going to come into your life. No amount of wisdom, no amount of money, no amount of luck, no amount, no amount of family prestige is going to keep suffering out of your life. Ecclesiastes 7.14, In the day of prosperity be joyful, and in the day of adversity consider, God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. God has made the day of adversity, and it will come for you. But if he's made it, that means you must not run from it. If God has made the adversity, you can't run from it. You must, in some sense, accept it. And this is what I mean. Most of the pain that's going to be inflicted on you in your life will be inflicted on you by the people closest to you, by the people who love you the most. I I think it's just common sense. I sin against my wife and my four children more than I sin against the rest of the world combined. Now, why is that? Because I hate my family so much? No, it's because I'm around my family so much, and I'm a sinner, and I'm just doing what I normally do. And it's the same with you as well. Most of the suffering that you're going to endure in this life is going to come from the people closest to you. And if you run from your suffering, that means you're going to run from them. And you're going to break the relationship. You're going to run from them by being bitter and holding all the stuff they did against them. You're going to run from them by cutting them off emotionally and just refusing to engage. You're going to run from them by attacking and lashing out and separating the relationship that way. But the wise person knows with death as a backdrop, God is in charge of the day of adversity. And trust him, even in suffering, even in death, trust God. That's what the preacher is saying. This is Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him who lo- whom he loves as a father the son in whom he delights. You know what he's saying? He's saying when suffering comes into your life, God is training you. God is shaping you. God is molding you because God is a good father and that's what good fathers do. They train their children. My wife and I had to teach our kids to say a lot of things. We had to teach them to say, yes, sir, no, sir. I mean, just over and over again. Yes, sir, no, sir. Yes, sir, no, sir. We had to teach them to say, please and thank you and you're welcome. We had to teach them to say, may I be excused from the table. But you know one word I never had to teach my kids? They learned it all by themselves. No. No. Now, why is that? Because we all come into this world selfish. We all come into this world only wanting what we want. And God knows, we all know, that if you just continue down that path, that's the path of destruction. And God wants to pull you off of that path of destruction and onto the way everlasting. And the only way to get our attention is through suffering. That is the only way to get our attention. So suffering will either make you a far worse person than you are right now, or it will make you a far wiser person than you are right now. And the difference is simply this. Will you trust God in the suffering? That makes all the difference. Will you trust him when you suffer? You may think that's, that's awfully hard, J.D. You don't, you don't know what I've been through. No, I don't. 
But, but you and I both know something about the God who brings the day of adversity that even the preacher himself didn't know. We know about Jesus. Did you, do you remember what, when, when they killed Jesus, when they put Jesus on the cross, do you remember how they mocked him? Do you remember what they said to make fun of Jesus while he was hanging on the cross? It's in Mark 15, beginning in verse 31. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Can I just tell you that if I were Jesus, how tempted I would have been to say, Oh, you want me to come down off this cross? Okay, I will. But praise God, Jesus is not like me. Because in the greatest act of love in human history, Jesus looked down and all those people mocking at him and jeering at him and spitting at him, and he stayed. And, whatever, and because he did, we can be sure of this. Whatever else is going on, nobody can tell you what's going on in your suffering. But whatever is going on, God is working God is the one who brings the day of adversity, and he is working in your suffering. And if you will trust him, he will make you a wiser person, a truly wise person who is patient and compassionate and humble and loving and caring. And don't we all want to be like that? The Bible says the ultimate wisdom. This is Ephesians 3. The ultimate wisdom is the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ on the cross. And the Bible says the way for you and I to gain the ultimate wisdom is to think about our death and particularly Jesus' death on the cross, to meditate on what it means that he was hanging there for you and me. And if you see that, friends, if you see that, you'll be, the preacher says, a wise person. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we do want to be wise. We're tired of being fools. We're tired of being battered, or battered around by the world. We want a place to stand. We, we want to be able to stand with Jesus, knowing that he's already hung there for us. Father, make us wise. We, we, we're tired of being proud. We're tired of judging others. Make us like Jesus. We trust you, Father. We're trying to trust you. Give us the grace to believe you when the day of adversity comes. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.